decisions that are going to be made and people are casting their vote. And Father, we ask that in all of this, your hand would guide and lead, uh, that you would protect this nation, not because we deserve it, but because we're asking for it. So Father, we ask that you would watch, watch over the Lane family with Mike and Pauline and Brian as another week has passed and Mike is a caregiver and Brian's waiting for a transplant. We ask that you would care for that family, that you would as I've asked in the past, give them a peace that passes all understanding. For the Marston family, as she is uh, sick and, and Rand is caring for her, that's hard work. So we ask that you would be very near to that family as well. And Father, for the, for the church that we have, the missions that they are carrying us on, we ask that you would bless this Operation Christmas Child and the Shoebox Ministry. Father, that the, the, the work that is done here would make a great difference at the other end to the recipient. Our hearts are right. We want to send these gifts out. We want the word of God to be proclaimed worldwide. And in our little way, we want to do what we can. So, Father, we ask that you'd bless these efforts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I trust that each of you have got that handout with a, with a map on it. And I, I elected to do something today that... Frankly, I probably have never done before, and, and I'm going someplace with this, and you're going, well, thank goodness, because I'm not a big map fan. Well, I guess you're going to be for the next half hour or so. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be going th through some of this, and in next week, I'm going to be having the a message when Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee, and there's a storm that kicks up. The week after that, it's going to be uh, going into the Gerizim area where Jesus casts demons out of these particular men but this kind of forms the groundwork and I'm going to be doing this one first just so you're all all aware I'm going to be doing the Sea of Galilee first and it's going to give you an idea I call it biblical geography so you can know that when you read stories in the Bible you go oh I see that's why this is happening because this is the cultural or ethnic uh, ethnicity of the particular region. Now, for those of you that are here all the time, you know I don't do this. But this is one of these deals that I, I just want to spend some time and I want to go through this so you can get a better appreciation of when you read, uh, particularly the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. It'll fill in what I call this message is going to color your picture more so you're going to have the sky is blue and we'll paint we'll color the grass and the the, the water is is blue and it's going to give it more contrast so you can see what's going on so we're going to start and i'm going to be i haven't used this for a while we're going to use it if you were to take right here if you go straight north and then going up on the sheet is north okay if you go right here and go straight up that's where the jordan river comes in comes in from the north flows through the Sea of Galilee, and it basically comes right out there, and it goes all the way down to the Dead Sea. So that kind of cuts the Sea of Galilee into two. And I'm going to start at the bottom and going clockwise. And that's going to be, where is it? Right here. It's going to be this area right here. And I have written in a bunch of stuff, but just so we're clear... From the bottom of, of the Sea of Galilee, all the way clockwise, all the way over to the top, that is referred to as the land of 12, for the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? 
That's, the, that's considered the land of 12. Now I'm going to break this area into two pieces. Right here, generally right here, and right here. This is where the Sadducees hung out. This is the Sadducees. They, they were pro-Herod. They liked Herod. They hated Jesus. They hated him. And here's, here's some of the facts about that particular area right here. So you just kind of listen a little bit and kind of put this in your mind. Uh, they supported Herod, and the Romans kept the peace in this area. Therefore, the Romans made, excuse me, made the Jews a lot of money. They, they, being the people in this particular area, the Sadducees, they were in charge of the temple. Caiaphas, the high priest, was from this area, but he actually worked in Jerusalem. The Sadducees were in charge of the money changers. Now, the Sadducees did not run the money changers. They did not run the tables. They got some profits from those running the tables. This was a group that likely were the ones that pushed to get Jesus, to get rid of him, the most. They were not like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had, they had a deal that they needed tranquility. It's kind of like, like with dairy farming. If you want to get the most milk out of the cow, things have to be calm. They have to have the right food, they have the, preferably the right weather, the right environment. And if any of those are disrupted, and you guys, you know farmers well enough, if you have a dog chase your dairy herd for five minutes, milk production plummets. It just goes because they like tranquility and calm and everything. Same thing with the Sadducees. They wanted tranquility and calm. They didn't want any ripple in the, in the economy. And can we say Jesus made some ripples? Oh, yeah. Jesus made some ripples, and it was cutting, cutting into their profit margin. Politically, Jesus would have been considered a Pharisee in that particular day. Now, we're going to go from here. If you look at the screen, we're going to go from right here, and we're going to go up, and we're going to take generally from right here clockwise this particular area right here. That's what we're going to talk about next, and that was the area of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, these were the religious, conservative Jews of the day, and the people who lived in this particular area, they were primarily agriculture, and they worked hard. They made a decent living, but they worked hard. And according to Scripture, when you look at various parts of Scripture, you'll see that I have a triangle at the very top. That triangle is Chorazin, right here. Chorazin, Copernicum, and Bethsaida. And it is believed, if you look at the Scripture, that he, Jesus spent at least 75% of his time there. Some have even went as high as 90% of his time there. Each one of those cities are two to three miles apart. Generally, that triangle is like two to three miles apart. Obviously, Jesus walked everywhere, okay? They didn't have rapid transit or anything. He walked everywhere. But if you were to take the, the, those three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, they would be a generally as big as Linden. Maybe put, put one city way on that end, put another city way over there, and another one over there would generally get it two to three miles apart, something like that. But if we were going to take public transit, that would be generally Sumas, Everson, and Linden. 
would generally be, in our day and age, the ministry area of Jesus. And he would go throughout that area over and over and over. And what is interesting is even though Jesus lived there 75 to 90% of the time, these are some of the words he had for the people in that particular region. In Matthew 11, it says, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that had been performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now understand, Jesus knew these people. We could say that they were friends. And this is, this is what he pronounced on the most familiar city that he knew. <clears throat> so now we're going to go up around. We're going to go clockwise. We're going to go right from here. And there's a little pie-shaped area right there. That is the zealots. That's the zealot region. They were the ones that were looking for a particular type of a king. Now this, is, this will put some of scripture into a better focus. It says, the battle cry of the zealots is Hosanna, which means free us or liberty, and their symbol, the symbol that the zealots had was, can you guess, the palm branch. Hey, they have found coins during the Maccabean era, and I looked it up, the Maccabean era was Oh, 125 years before Jesus Christ, they found coins that had palm branches on them. This was from the Zealot region, and it is a symbol of independence, freedom. It is believed that the people who welcomed Jesus at the triumphal entry at Mark 10 or Mark 11 and others, these were of the Zealot persuasion, and the Zealots hoped or at least they wanted Jesus to be their king, and every, well, I shouldn't say every known area, but many of the areas listed in Scripture where Jesus healed, he healed the person that was blind, he healed the person that was lame, leprosy, mute, and, and many times he says, he sternly told them, tell no man what I've done for you. Well, one reason, I believe, is they, he didn't want people to love him or want him for what he would do for them. You know, I'm just going to come to Jesus so I can get fed or I can get healed, and otherwise I really don't care about him. That was one reason. But another reason is he didn't want to get the zealots all stirred up. He didn't want to get them all fired up that, oh, hey, this is the guy that's going to give us independence. I mean, how much better can you get than a commander who can make bread? Who can, who can heal somebody if they get injured or if they're deaf or blind or mute or have leprosy. 
this is fantastic. I mean, we've got our own safety net right here in Jesus, and he didn't want to get them stirred up. So often, not every time, but oftentimes he told people sternly, tell no one what I have done for you, so the zealots wouldn't go off the rails. Um, and by the way, you can look it up on a Google search uh, when Jesus told people not to tell him, there's just a whole bunch of them. There's just a whole bunch of them. Uh, finally, I want to give you a little bit of a, a background regarding the zealots. You see that little town there? It's called Gamla. Gamla is, is unique. That is a very, very historical portion of the Jewish history. Gamla was a city that was put, it was called a, 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 a hill like a camelback. It had, it had bumps on it. They called it camelback, but it had a 40-degree slope. So it was steep. This thing is steep. And what Gamla was is it was built into the hillside, so three walls are in the hillside. And the, the wall that's facing out has a really steep cliff that goes way down. Well, the zealots were, that was their headquarters. And they were in Gamla, and the Romans wanted to root them out. And the Romans lost lots and lots of soldiers trying to root out Gamla. And what they did, there was four to 6,000 people in this city, and what the people would do is on the walls that were into the, uh, into the hillside, well, that wall would come out a little bit, and the Romans would try to take a battering ram and break down the city wall and get in. Well, there were, there were residences right at the wall, so what the people would do, they would fill the rooms full of rubble. So instead of having a wall two feet thick, two feet thick, they would battering ram, and they find it's 20 feet thick because they filled the whole room full of rubble. Well, obviously, this frustrated the Romans' attempt to root them out, and they pretty much gave up. Well, the guy that was heading up the town of Gamla was Josephus, and the Romans could never beat Josephus. And then, we won't get into the history of it, but almost by accident, the Romans captured Josephus. It's just, it's just a fluky thing. They just kind of captured him, and everyone knew in Gamla there was one weak area. One area that was unprotected, but the Romans never knew where it was. Now, we don't know if the, if the Israelis kept that weak area as an escape hatch, or if they ran out of time to fortify it. We don't know, but what we do know is very quickly after Josephus was captured, the Romans came back, and they went at that exact and they gained entry into the city. So to this day, the Jews say that Josephus uh, saved his life by telling the Romans where the weak spot was. Josephus denies this. I would expect he would. But it seems awfully strange that they came back, they found the weak spot, they gained entry into the city, and rather than be taken alive, there was 5,000 people that threw themselves off off the wall down the cliff. And of those, 4,000 died. And there is a story that is told of a grandfather throwing his 13 grandsons off the cliff and then he himself jumping rather than letting the Romans capture them. Now, I don't mean to make this political, but do you think we have people that are zealous nowadays? Holy smoke. They're nuts. I mean, they're nuts by, by all standards that we live by. Zealots had zeal, 
and they would do anything to be free. The zealots had four laws. God equals the government, and only the government, and only the government they would accept was God. Get it? God's government, the only government we'll accept is God. Only God can tax. Remember in Matthew 22, it says, uh, in fact, I'm going to read it. It says, paying taxes to Caesar. Here it goes. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Now, remember, the Pharisees, they're in this area. They came over to, the, to a region, and it says, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Oh, the Herodians, they're right here. That's where the Herodians occupy. Okay, they're the Sadducee bunch. So both the, the Pharisees and members of the Herodians, they said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, knowing their evil intent, says, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Who's Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar, they replied. Then he said, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God's what is God's. That was undoubtedly a zealot question. Because they were always wanting, okay, Jesus, which government are you lining up with here? Because we as zealots only look to God as our government. What do you do? So they were trying to, so there was a lot of political connotations to this, not just whether you pay taxes or you don't pay taxes. Third, the third law that the zealots had, remember, God equals the government. You only, only God can tax death rather than slavery. Hence the story of Masada years later. And Sal and I went to Masada, and it's probably, I don't know, 60 miles south of uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be way, way down here, see it there in the, in the baptismal, and you go down to Masada, and it's, it's like way down there. And it's a really high place, and it is self-sufficient, essentially. They can grow crops up there, they can have the water system where they're going to get water, and they have cisterns. But it was a zealot stronghold. It was the last one. And in Masada, the Romans came, and through a whole series of events that we won't get into, they finally took over the city because the zealots had these four laws. And eventually Masada went, okay, it all went away. That's not the point of our message this morning. But the fourth law that the, the zealots had was violence will help the Messiah come. And they did their part, let me tell you. They wanted to have Messiah come, and they figured their, their violence and their, their resistance, whether it be in Gamla or in Masada or elsewhere, they believed that it would hasten the coming of the Messiah. Okay, so now we're going to go. We have talked about the Sadducee area, the Pharisee area, the little zealot area right here. Now we're going to talk about this whole, this whole portion right here, which was called the Decapolis area. Decapolis means ten cities. What happened, we all know historically that Alexander the Great, he went out and he conquered all kinds of cities and nations and, and lands, and he had all of this stuff, 
but his soldiers were getting tired. His generals had been fighting for years and years and years, and just to be blunt, they wanted to go home. I want to go home to my wife. I want to see my kids. I want to maybe see my grandkids. I want to have a family. I just, I just want to sell. I'm tired of fighting. I just want to go. So what Alexander the Great said is, okay, I'm going to parcel out land all through here, and I'm going to give it to those members of my military, and they can settle down. And that's where they settled down. This was a Greek, a Greek area. It was pagan. It was absolutely pagan, and it was called, often, not often, but there were times when this area was called the Land of Seven. I suspect it was there were seven regions that were given out, but anyway, it was called the Land of Seven, or the Decapolis, meaning ten cities. This particular area embraced a, a pagan god called Pan, and Sal and I went to the place that originated this it was where the it was further up north but it it was a god it was a fertility god and this is part of why I'm giving giving you this it was in this area the god or the, the the sacrificial animal for the Jews was a lamb the sacrificial animal for pan was the pig hence Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side, and there were 2,000 pigs, and then we know they drowned and all this and that. Okay, those were the sacrificial animals for that region's pagan god called Pan. So that gives you a, a clearer phone going, oh, okay, okay. So, so that's how it fits. Now, I mentioned earlier this area right here is called the Land of Twelve, and it extends all the way to the northern portion of the, of the Sea of Galilee. This portion is the land of seven. Now here's something that's very interesting. At least twice, if not three times, we know I'm going I'm to camp on twice because I know that. Jesus had the people fed. They had five loaves and Jesus broke it and he gave it to the people and it, it said in one of them there were 12 basketfuls left over. This took place right here in the triangle areas where that took place. Well, isn't that interesting? That was in the land of 12. Another time Jesus fed the multitudes. He had seven loaves. He fed 4,000 people. They picked up the, the remnants. There were seven baskets full left. But that one was done in the Decapolis area, the land of seven. So isn't that interesting? So you kind of go, hmm, hmm. Now, What's interesting, <laughs> rabbis believe that this is symbolic, and they believe that these numbers, stories, and events have great meaning. However, they do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You go, what kind of makes you want this? They have great meaning. Apart from Jesus being the Messiah, you go, well, how do they have this great meaning? Nevertheless, that's, that's what they believe. Now, that gives you just a brief rundown I would ask that you put this in your Bible. You're going to need it next week or the week after because you see there's, like I have these little dots here in, in the sea of, sea of Galilee. We're going to be talking about that in the, the sermons that are coming up. So this lays you a groundwork regarding the Sadducees, Pharisees, Zealots, and the Decapolis area, which was pagan. So I put at the bottom, just because I have the room and I thought it was interesting, there are times when Jesus and his disciples were tired. 
And he, want, he wanted to get away from the crowds and he wanted to rest. The four primary places where Jesus went to rest to get away from the crowds, and it's on the bottom left corner of your map, is Bethsaida area. The Bethsaida area is right here. Another one was the Decapolis area, which would be right here. Then you had another one with Caesarea Philippi, way at the top. He would go there to rest. And the one other area where Jesus would go rest, you can see on the other side, flip your map over, it's at the top, right at the very top, it says Phoenicia, kind of written sideways. Phoenicia, that's where Jesus would go to rest, to get away from the multitudes. Those are the four places most often that Jesus would talk about to get away, to kind of recharge his batteries. Okay, now we're going to shift gears. <clears throat> we're going to look at another portion of, of Israel that hopefully will give you a little bit of color regarding what is going on. So I'm going to take... Oh, i got to do this. Okay, there, I did it. Okay, if you could kind of watch my, my uh, pointer here, and I can kind of point out some of the things that, that are going to be interesting, and then you can kind of look at your, your, your map and kind of figure out how this all works. You're going to be looking here. There, there is a dark color extending north to south. There's one. It's called the Coastal Plain. There's another one. It's called the Shephelah, or the Foothills. And the third one is the mountain region right here. Now, when you those are the three three ranges that run north and south in Israel. Sal and I, when we traveled, we went right here. We went right in between these two, right in between there. And I am here to tell you, that mountain range is a mountain range. Holy smokes, I don't even know if goats could go up there. It is just rugged. Okay, what, what you have here is when the Israelites came into the Promised Land, the coastal plain was occupied by the Philistines. Currently now it's Palestine. The middle one was the Shephela. It's called the uh, foothills, the vale. If you be the vale, uh, they have other words for it, a valley, plain, something like this. And the Israelites occupied the mountain region. Now that is not God's intent. God did not want them to be taking the mountain region. He wanted them to take all of this area, but it didn't turn out quite the way God wanted it to. Now, you'll see right here in the coastal plain, the, the Philistines occupied there, and they had several cities, and they're all in that little dark area. The, the cities of the Philistines were Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gezer. Those are all the major primary big hitters in the Philistine area. Do not think that the Philistines were a bunch of hillbillies and the Israelites really had it together. Because really it was the other way around. The, the Israelites were a bunch of hillbillies. The, the Philistines at this particular time, they made iron. In fact, I want to read this one little snippet from 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 13 it says, now a blacksmith could not be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make spears and swords. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. 
the price was two-thirds of a shekel, on and on and on. The, the Philistines, for their day, were pretty on board. They were pretty well advanced. They had, they had, as I said, they made iron. They had advanced clothing. They were the only one, the Bible talks about, that had their own personal military cha uh, champion called Goliath. They had city-states, and I looked it up. A city-state would be like the Vatican. The Vatican's got the, the city of Rome, and then right in the middle is an independent, sovereign place that you don't tell them what to do. The Vatican is that way. They're right in the middle. That, that's the same thing that the, that the Phil Philistines had, is city-states. So they were advanced. They were powerful enough to rule themselves and not to make a joke. Not to make a joke, but there's a ton of archaeological uh, digs that show that the Philistines made beer. And a lot of it. And they put it in copper or uh, um, pottery-type containers. And there is speculation among theologians, academics, and rabbis that that is why, or one of the reasons, Samson went to live with the, the Philistines because as a, as a person under a Nazarene vow, he was not allowed to partake from the fruit of the vine. Wine. Beer was not the fruit of the vine. So it is a possibility that that was one of the reasons that he could go down and he could still be under his Nazarene vow. But that is speculation. But we do know that the Philistines were advanced enough that they could make, they could make beer. Um, so that the Philistines were not barbarians. Really, if you were to look at it, the Israelites were the barbarians, and the Philistines were pretty well advanced. Uh, during the time frame, well, you'll, let me put it this way. In Judges 13, it says that the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. Big surprise, it says that a lot of places. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. But during this time frame, the Israelites were drawn into the culture of the Philistines. They were, they were drawn into their religion, their lifestyle, their technology, and other things. And this was the setting, this was the complexity that Samson was born into. So, a question, question could be raised. Why was not Samson more effective? as one of the, he was, he was one of the judges of Israel. Well, one of the reasons is he went to live with the people he was called to confront. He was living with them, and his failure was that he participated and somewhat accepted a set of values that he had originally been called upon to confront. And for us, it is impossible for us to live out a God-centered existence if we live with what we can call the enemy, and we seem to agree with the culture around us. One of the greatest failures of the Christian community is when we seem to adopt the values, the culture, and the lifestyle of the very people we have called, been called upon to con confront and be distinct from. You see the, you see the comparison. With Sam Samson went to live with what we call the enemy, and Christians are living in the, in the very region we are called to confront them and to present to them a holy and righteous God. But nevertheless, let's go on. The Philistines, they disappeared after the time of Solomon. So, if you were to take David as a shepherd boy, and it's believed that David was about 12 years old as a shepherd boy, if you were to take a boy or a girl 
and I've mentioned this before, but it's just because it fits, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring it up again, is the sheep in a region would be put in a pen of thorns. It, would, they just, it doesn't have to be that high because the sheep are not gonna get out. But early in the morning, you'd have whether a boy or a girl would come to the entrance of the pen, and they would either have like a sing-song type of a greeting, or they would have words or a phrase or something unique. But if you were to take, let's say my granddaughter's Macy, if she was a, 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 one of the shepherds, she'd come up there and she would do her little and only her sheep would come out. And then Ma or, uh, Ma, uh, Gretchen, she could come over and she could do the and only her sheep would come out. And there was never, ever a problem that too many sheep went with Macy or, too, or not enough sheep went with Gretchen because that's what our Savior says is only my, those that are mine hear my voice. Yeah. And the, the Jews would go, well, yeah. I mean, you could have all these different shepherds. All the sheep are mixed. Fine. And they will only come out or go in to the voice of their shepherd. There was never a problem with getting them mixed up with too many or too few. So, when you looked at we talked about the Philistines over here, and they, they, had, they had this region tied down. The Shephelah was the lowland, the valley, the plain. It was fertile. It was excellent for crops, especially grapes. And this is where Samson's exploits took place. They didn't take place here. He didn't do it right in, in the city. He didn't do it where the, where the Jews were living in the mountains. This is where many of their conquests took place. And if you see in the valley, or in the Shephelah area, you see that, that city, Azekah? Azekah's right there. Azekah's right there. That's where David fought Goliath. It wasn't, in, it wasn't in the Philistine area. It wasn't in the Jewish area. It was in the tween, I call it the tweener. It was in the tweener area where they'd come in, and this is where it took place. So, <clears throat> according to 1 Kings 10... The Shephelah area, right here, at one time was completely wooded with sycamore trees. In fact, if you were to look in uh, 1 Kings 10, verse 27, it said that Solomon made silver as common as stones, and he made, oh, he made cedar, and he made cedar as common as sycamore trees, which means it places just Sycamore trees. I mean, how many, I can tell you how many stones are in Israel. A lot. Okay, it's everywhere. So sycamore trees would have been everywhere. So you say, well, pastor, there's, I was there. There's no trees over there. That's right. Is five, about 500 years ago, the Turks invaded Israel, and in order to conquer some of the stone cities, they just started cutting down trees. And they would dig a hole under the stone wall, and they just stuff these trees in there, and if it burns long enough, stone will crumble. And it did. But it, they had to completely cut down all the trees in the Shephelah area to take over and, and uh, conquer some of these stone cities. And it, now we go there today and you go, there's no sycamore trees. That's right. That's why. East of the Shephelah, or the mountain range, is where the Jews lived. Okay? It was... As, as lush, as green, as agriculturally profitable as it was over here on the coastal plain, the Shephela, it was the opposite in the mountains. They get two to four inches of rain a year. It's brown. 
it's just not nice. But here's the deal. Psalm 23 was written with the mountain range in mind. He says, it says, among other things, it talks about uh, green pastures. And I may have even mentioned it to you. For us, when we think of green pastures, we think of some field, whether over there or somewhere over there, and the grass is about this high, and it's about half, almost up to your knee, or at least halfway up your calf, and you go, that's green pastures. No, no, no. Psalm 23 was written in regards to the mountain area right here, where you would have moisture come off the Mediterranean Sea, in the morning, the wind would blow over this way. It would condense on some of the rocks in the mountain region. You'd get a drop or two of moisture would run down the edge of that rock. And right by the edge of the rock, you'd have a little teeny bit of grass. And that's what the sheep ate. And that was, for the Jew, green pastures. Meaning, you had just enough food today. Tomorrow we'll have just enough food for tomorrow. That's what that meant. It's not what we're thinking of. It's just enough grass. So, okay, hang with me. You take each one of these ranges, they run north and south, and an army cannot go east and west and cover those ranges. Can't do it except for two tiny spots. One is Lachish right here and Beth Shemesh right there. There was two entry points going east and west, but they weren't real big. Okay, they, they were pretty small, but any Jew, any Jew, militarily would know about Lachish and Beth Shemesh and they would guard it accordingly, which is why I come back to what I just said. You can't invade going east and west. You can't do it. You can't do it. It's just, you're not going to take an army to do that. So what happened is they developed three roads. One road was called the Via Maris, the sea road or the way of the sea. And it would go right along here. You see the dotted line? It'd go right there. It'd come up. It'd go all the way to the top. That was the Via Maris, sea road or way of the sea. Then you had the secondary route was called the King's Highway. Right here. It was on the east side of the Dead Sea. It'd go right up the side, right up to the top. And connecting both of those roads was one highway called the Jericho Road. Right there. You go through Jericho and go to Gezer. Okay? I want to give you just a little bit of background on, on these that I think will help you out. Is one of the reasons Solomon was so rich and maybe one or two kings after him. One of the reasons they were so phenomenally rich is because during that era, they had control of all three routes and all three cities that were choke points. The three cities, real important, three cities is right here at the top, Hazer, Megiddo, and Gezer. Those are your three major cities that controlled the choke points of the Viamara, and who controlled the trade, the trade routes and who controlled the cities was vastly wealthy, vastly wealthy. And Solomon and a couple kings after him controlled those three cities and the routes. It is said that in Megiddo right here, 
that there's one area of the road that is so narrow it's about 10 foot wide. Well, that's an easy choke point to defend. So if you control that, it means a ton of wealth. Now, what about the King's Highway, or it's also called the Spice Route, or the Spice Highway. The reason it got this name is we know from up here, the Sea of Galilee, or way up here, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, and way down over here is Egypt. Egypt had, in their mind, they had to have their dead properly buried. And they had to have certain spices with the body. And since Egypt could not raise any of them, they had to have them imported. And the route to get to Egypt was, what do you know? The King's Highway. That was the route to get to Egypt. So Solomon and some of the, a couple kings after him, they taxed any export-imports going through there. And they made a ton of money. In fact, the money Israel took in consisted of 25 tons of gold per year just on these routes that doesn't count the ships because it talks about tons and tons of gold coming from Oprah. That was via ships and you would have gifts from the Queen of Sheba. She would come in and just give lavish gifts to the King of Solomon. And so the King of Solomon, he, he talked with many of the leaders and they would bring him gifts. We start accumulating all these gifts and all the tariffs and all the stuff that's going on, and he was phenomenally wealthy. And that was, that was right in um, uh, 1 Kings 10, verse 14. He got 25 tons of gold a year, and that was on for year after year after year after year. So I want to close it up this way. I've given you a lot of information. Hopefully I wrote some of it down. Uh, oh, by the way, these three cities, Gezer, Megiddo, and Hazer were considered chariot cities. And that is where Solomon fortified him. He had thousands and thousands of chariots and tens of thousands of horses. Why? He was going to protect those cities. Because he knew whoever controlled those controlled the trade and got a ton of money. So he, those were called chariot cities. Okay, I think I, and you guys got it all done, then we're going to just take these pages away and you can make a two-scale diagram of all the stuff that we just talked about, and you can put it on the sheet of paper, and then we'll grade it, and, and you'll be excommunicated if you didn't do well. No. <laughs> this is the conclusion that I want to make. It's today, today, just like in the time of Israel with the, the Philistines, we are in conflict with our civilization. And some of God's values and ideas that he commands us to propagate, we don't. It's like the Israelites, they were supposed to go down here and occupy this land, but no. They went and they occupied the mountain range, and it could be said that they withdrew. They withdrew from the task that God had given them to go out and to conquer the land and to make the God of Israel the God of the land. And I think what happens far too often in our particular society is God calls us to live in the Shephelah. He calls us to take the promised land and the good land, and that is where we're supposed to live. We're supposed to be in the front lines to influence the world, but many of us, certainly many churches in the United States, we avoid the battle and we withdraw, and we're living in the mountains, and we have no impact on the secular society around us. 
we try to just get away like the Israelites, we'll just not be in the crosshairs. We'll just remove ourselves. But you know what? The same thing's going to happen to us that happened with the Israelites because, see, even though the Israelites were in the mountain region, the pagans came looking for them. They didn't leave them alone. They came looking for them, so it was useless to withdraw. The Christian community could, today can learn a valuable lesson from the Philistine-Israelite conflict. To live in a Western culture is to live where opposing values clash. But our calling for, before God is to confront the secular values of our world. And you know what? To confront them and win. That's what we're called upon to do. And one little thing that you can do to confront Western society is vote. You have never heard me say, this is not a political forum, this is not a political podium, Jesus Christ is what reigns right here, not politics. But we are called upon and we have the gift to vote. And it would be highly disappointing to me if someone in our church did not vote. You vote your conscience. But we are to vote with Jesus Christ in mind, and we are to vote to confront those things that are evil in our society. That is one thing that we can do, and I would certainly encourage all of you to do it. There you have it. There's kind of a biblical geography. If you could keep this map with you for next week, uh, we're probably going to refer to it not nearly as much as this week, but... Uh, hopefully it'll make a little bit more sense on some of the things that we're going to be talking about, and we'll see how this goes. So you probably got a lot of information. That's why I wanted to give you something to take with you. Otherwise, you kind of like turn on the fire hose and maybe you get a cup of water. <laughs> so let's pray. We're done. Father, we are just grateful for the richness of your word and how you, you want us to know these things that put color in the picture that make us see things in a different light, that kind of make the events and the circumstances in Scripture come to light. So, Father, we thank you for the ability to do this, and we ask that the things that were taught would help us to look at the Savior with even more intimacy and with more thanksgiving. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.